Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Katie Parla on the show today. Hello, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Nice to see you. It's great to see you. So you grew up in New Jersey. That's right. And what was that like? Uh, Special. It was a delightful place to grow up. I didn't know it until I left, (laughs) Um, as many Jersey natives uh, do. This is the Inglewood area? uh, I grew up in outside of Princeton. Oh, okay. Yeah. So... You were good at like training for test scores, like Princeton. Yeah, I mean, ETS is there and like all these crazy things. I got really good at taking tests, I suppose, um, and used that as my ticket to get as far away from New Jersey as I could. So like 200 miles away. Basta, as they say. Oh, (laughs) 200 miles. Yeah, I left. I went really, really far. Two states away. (laughs) It's because you went to school at Yale. Yeah, yeah. So lived in New Haven. How was the pizza? It was pretty great. I still dream about, you know pies with clams on them all the time. Are we talking Sally's or Pepe's? Um, Sally's. I also love Modern. I worked at Bar. I went to the oh, Modern recently. Did you enjoy it? I, I'm a Pepe's guy. I gotta okay. tell you. I Especially I, I, for I clam. I, I wasn't a big fan of my, my the freshness of my clams at either Sally's or the Modern. Okay. I, I think I would stick with just tomato. But you all lived right. there for several years. Yeah, many so years ago. It seems like you would know better. Well, in this instance. you've been more recently than me. I'm always up for going back to places and, and checking them out again, seeing if they're still on point. What was, uh, what was Yale like? I mean, Yale. <laughs> um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was great. I mean, I think at first you're just sort of shocked that anyone would let you in anywhere <laughs> when you get to a place like that. And they're like, you know, everyone ends up in the CIA or, you know, selling... You're, you're, and, and you're not talking about cooking school. <laughs> no, definitely not. Right. Yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, you, you look back on on the moments of university that you remember the most, and like one of them was sort of like the CIA had a stand at the jobs fair senior year. Yeah. So I was like, oh, is this like real life? <laughs> but there's and something about that place that fits into that. Totally. Like the architecture of Yale is a little yeah. spook. Totally, yeah. But no, it was a really rewarding place. Great food city, great drink city. And... uh and like urban, but also sort of like small town feel in some places. So it was fantastic. And that's where I cultivated my love for, for Italy and for the architecture and culture of Italy. What was the first move on that? What was like, oh, hey, I'm kind of interested in this. Um, I think I was racking up a lot of like econ classes and doing really, really badly in them because I thought I had to be a, I don't know, investment banker or something. I didn't know. But, um, but then, you know, I look at my 
classless and was figuring out major. And I was like, well, I've got a lot of art history classes that I do really well. And I really, really love this stuff. So maybe, maybe I should follow this path. And had some really great professors, like junior, junior and uh, senior year, and got a fellowship to go do my re- uh, thesis research in Rome. And that was, I already decided when I was much younger that I wanted to live in, in Rome. But it was that like interim between junior and senior year at college where I was like, okay, I can do this. Like I spent two months living in kind of shitty apartment <laughs> um, and, you know, I spent all my own money and felt like a grown up. Um, but it was still that like vacation honeymoon period where it also felt like it was a place full of like promise and potential for work. So, because that's not what the Romans usually say. Like people <laughs> exactly. who grow up in Rome usually say it's a place of despair and no work. Totally. Yeah. I should have, uh, should have vetted my city a bit more. <laughs> Maybe if you talk to the people at Pepe's as opposed to the people at Sally's. That's true. Okay. <laughs> that would no, be the real, the real deal. So, you're studying art history at Yale. How'd you put yourself through school? Um, well, a combination of financial aid and loans that I'll eventually pay off soon. <laughs> and, uh, my parents helped out too. But no, no restaurant work or anything. Like I that. was working, I was working at bar. Um, I did a lot of club promotion. I worked at the Spanish restaurant, uh, down the street from my house. Um, yeah. So always in sort of like front of house hospitality. I grew up in a restaurant family, so I was always very at home on the floor. I love, um, being able to like organize things and set up parties. So, so that's a. Uh, when you that's say you grew up in a restaurant family, what's that mean? Um, my parents met in the business. My dad's still in the business, and uh, so he ran restaurants my whole life. And um, when I was in high school, he opened a place in in New Brunswick called Clyde's, C L Y D Z, and uh, and so DC with a Z. At yeah, the end? so there's a place in um, I guess Maryland or the DC area that's called Clyde's, C L Y D E apostrophe S, and they sued my father for competition or something for the name. So we just simply changed the spelling. Um, when they got the letter and it was a cease and desist letter, was C spelled with a Z? Or with a Z, two with, Zs. With an S. <laughs> <laughs> so does that mean that you were hanging out at restaurants kind of waiting for your dad to get done with whatever he was supposed to do so he could drive you home, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, we would we would go to the restaurants where he worked. Um, and especially on Saturdays, we would spend Saturdays at the restaurants and like, be able to order anything we wanted to on the menu and, you know, have as many, like, he was working when I was uh, in elementary school and, and uh, yeah, I suppose elementary school and middle school. He's working in a place called Stuff Your Face in New Brunswick. So we could order, like, every bowly that we wanted to. It's when, um, like, honey mustard became a thing. That was, like, a really, that opened my eyes to all new flavors. I mean, this was the 80s, so. It's really high tone, <laughs> honey mustard. It almost, you know, it goes through your nose, totally, honey mustard. Totally, you know, It's like a nasal thing. So, yeah, there, there were, granted, a lot of fried things, but also a lot of different, like, flavor contrasts and things. At this place, it was a bar with, you know, I don't know, 100 beers on tap, um, but lots of, like, great bar food. Um, and and also, I, liked, I liked eating like that, but I also liked the the idea of, like, greeting people and and speaking to people. My dad was always shooting the breeze and, and uh, entertaining, so I thought that was really cool. But it also has that vibe of, like, it's your birthday, you can order whatever you want. Totally. I can have, like, whatever, ch- 10 orders of chicken fingers if I want, and I did. So you do end up moving to Rome, and when did that happen and how did it come about? Um, I moved to Rome in 2003, um, January 2003, and, uh, yeah, it was after, about six months after graduation, um, I'd been saving all through college and then um, saved, you know, working those those six months and uh, packed up and, and left and went 
with the idea that I would always live there, I guess I didn't really know what that meant at the time, but were I you just looking for a husband or were you looking you know. for fancy art? I'm asking. <laughs> no. No, definitely not. Um although that is a common uh common practice I I hear, but um no, I was looking I was looking for something that was totally new. I liked being out of my element. I liked the idea of being in a culture, trying to learn it well enough to be eventually adopted into it. Um now as a person that's, you know, 11 year veteran in in Rome, I know that I never will fully be Roman. There are a whole set of of, you know, cultural um rules and regulations that go along with with that, but you know, uh, I feel when very When did that become clear? Um about 3 years in. Um so I was already like working, I was already fluent, but then I realized that there were I mean, there are obvious cultural differences and and uh I'm you know, extremely outspoken and very critical, especially in in my job and the articles that I write about restaurants and things. So I wasn't blending at all. Um, on the contrary, I was uh, becoming very conspicuous and somewhat annoying to some <laughs> to some people. And and uh, and so yeah. So after you know three years of living there, I realized that I can really live in these two worlds: the anglophone world. I was working with a lot of Americans. Um, giving tour, doing? I was giving tours, Transpush. cultural tours, yeah, mainly architectural and archaeological tours. But the more time I would spend with people, the more people would return. They'd want to get deeper into the culture, and naturally, food and beverage became the vehicle for for them to at least for their short time in the city to learn more about the people, how they work, what they eat, and why. And um, so, is that easy? Can you just kind of roll into a place, get a great meal, and experience the? Yeah legacy of Italian cuisine? Or no, definitely it? not. I mean, Rome um, becomes increasingly a place where it's very diffi- difficult to eat well. And it's it's such an interesting time in Rome. And in the past three years, two or three years, we've seen a lot of great new places open. They're not interesting to every Roman because they serve things that are not conventional, traditional. Um, they have wine lists or craft beer lists that don't appeal to everyone. And uh, and there's now some of the worst food. I mean, a lot of the food is really, really bad industrial garbage that people are happy to eat because they're served a lot of it. Um, and this is due to a cultural shift. It's due to an economic shift. Um, I think this is also true in you know other parts of the world. But Italy and and Rome have so much sort of goodwill towards them, and and people want to protect that notion of Rome as a romantic place. I mean, goddamn, the word romantic was born to describe the city, um, and it's. It's painful to have to internalize the reality. I mean, Rome is a wonderful place. I love it, but there's 42% youth unemployment and women are underemployed and the people who are employed often have precarious freelancer contracts with no benefits. So those affect how people can and will shop for food and how they drink. And that's really something that you can see playing out in in the dining and drinking establishments of the city. Um, and people who return visitors... People who have access to the internet, for example, are now able to see that, though I think it's not a very widespread accepted notion. Like there's a resistance from the people who could be benefiting from what you're saying in terms of finding that cool, funky place with the interesting yeah, thing for sure. to admit that Rome is maybe not that great when yeah, it comes yeah. to food. I, I definitely think so. And I think definitely a lot of uh, food guides and people that do like wine tours and things like that benefit from perpetuating that stereotype. Um, I mean, from saying, "Hey, this is the greatest place on earth. You should come and take yeah, our and tour, like, and we'll show you." Yeah, it's like pizza and pasta on the piazza, and it's like die. Like that doesn't make any sense. That is so 
disrespectful to a culture that needs to be, like, people who are curating people's experiences have a responsibility to the culture that they're exploiting. <laughs> um, and if they do anything less than demonstrate reality, then they're just stealing money in exchange for bad information. Um, and this is unfortunately a pretty prominent practice. And it's not unique to Rome at all, obviously, but as a, as a Rome resident, someone who you know, conducts lots of wine tastings, craft beer tours, and, uh, and curates meals and, and is really invested in, in the food and wine culture, I mean, I think there's a huge responsibility that you take on as someone who is that ambassador to the city's enogastronomic culture. In a way, I feel when I speak with you, like a big part of the thing is trying to tell a story that's not being allowed to get filtered through by some gatekeepers, whether that be in writing that people don't want to publish that article mm -hmm. or whether that be in uh, what you're saying about restaurants or how you might approach that, those kind of restaurants and in which way, what time and which day. Mm -hmm. No, I, th I think that's very accurate. And, uh, and there are some... I mean, there's some editors, in addition to the food tourism and, and things like that, I also do a lot of freelance writing. Um, but uh, but the sort of like mainstream press does, isn't interested in, in the detailed decline of Italian gastronomic culture. Uh, I mean, to be fair, there are, there are moments when you can pitch a story and have it accepted that praises people doing great things. They're not the majority, they're not the standard, but, um, and it's very important to give those people attention because without good communication for them, they die. I mean, Rome and any visitor, any visitor who's interested in like finding out the dining hours of a place, <laughs> if you go on a website of even a very well-respected restaurant, you won't find the hours, but if you go on their Facebook page, you might. So the communication, the way that people communicate to their customers is a really myopic approach to business. It implies that people are already connected to you. Um, it implies that you already have knowledge of the Italian language um, or traditional dining hours. So one thing that that through my writing and, and, and through my blog and other things, I try to make it easier for visitors to navigate the um, dining landscape um, because the communication is really, really so bad. If you're really great at maintaining your fantastic wine bar in Monti, you might not be fantastic at employing the right people to make your website with, let's say, the correct phone number written on it or the address. <laughs> um, so just to give an example of one place. And how long have you lived there now? Um, over 11 years. So 11 years in January. Was there a cultural shift during that period of time or was it pretty steady? I mean, I think a decade ago, we started to see a huge change in the way that people spent money. Um, and it was directly related to the euro really taking hold. And when the euro became the currency, the cost of everything doubled, but wages didn't double. Wages weren't weren't recentered to, to reflect the cost of living change. So that meant that people who could go out for lunch every day was diminished. People that could afford to go out to dinner a few times a week and pizza once a week um, plummeted. And so places started um, trying to attract diners um, by changing the way that they serve food. So some restaurants, which, which previously never did multiple seatings, would very rigidly seat tourists at 7.30 and then regulars at 9, pushing out the tourists in an aggressive way in order to do the double seating, which is, of course, common in the North American 
dining scene, but in Italy it wasn't done. The definitely more damaging um, change was um, in order to get diners, Italian Roman diners, into Roman restaurants, um, places started serving larger pasta portions um, because simply it's cheaper to make a really giant bucket of pasta than it is to make a giant steak to get people in the door. The profit margin's higher. And that has really... That's been really effective. So you go now to restaurants today and a lot, I mean, when I have family or friends in town or, or when I'm dining with clients, they say like, how do you eat all of these courses and have a bottle of wine? Well, no one does that anymore. They can't afford it and the portions are too big. So that's a really huge cultural shift and the way that people interact at, at restaurants has really changed and they visit them less. So of course the, the market had to respond in order to draw people in. So you're saying all those fabulous little antipasti courses that may have been the Italian meal at some places got shrunk into like, here's your big thing of pasta. I mean, the antipasto thing still still exists. You still get like the antipasto plate. A couple of places still have those, you know, great buffets. But but yeah, I mean, people will go out to dinner and rather than starting with a starter um, and then moving on to a pasta and then their protein course and then their vegetable side dish and then dessert and then... Um, coffee and then amaro. Um, they'll have two dishes and a, you know quartino of wine and uh, rather than a full bottle. Yeah, so people spend less and they have less to spend, so it makes sense. So there's a local cuisine and there's a local clientele, and mm-hmm. the local clientele can no longer really afford to dine much at the restaurants like right. they used to. Mm-hmm. And who can come is maybe other people from other parts of Europe who can mm-hmm. travel cheaply in there. Sure. Take a cheap flight, maybe German or Swiss, mm-hmm. and then the Americans who have grown up with all those movies, mm-hmm. and maybe they have a much more simplistic idea of that cuisine and are always asking for the same three items. And sure. then because the people who know that cuisine well aren't dining, mm-hmm. are not customers, maybe sure. the cuisine then changes. Absolutely. Does that yeah. happen? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, Roman cuisine is something that if you study Italian gastronomy, it's a very specific set of dishes, a set of um, rituals. But it's always been changing. So this is just part of a new evolution. Now, we do have, of course, a massive decline. But there's also a small but growing number of places driven by quality. Um, they tend to be sort of out of the price range of your average Roman. But but they serve great food. They serve great wine. They have a you know staff that's properly trained to serve wine, which is a novel thing in Rome. So, yeah, I think if you visited Rome 10 years ago and then you go back, you're going to see that things have have changed. Some for the better, some for the worse. It would also seem that some of those restaurants are not just on the outskirts of style, but on the outskirts of town. I, I walked like way mm-hmm. far away once to go to a very good casual place with a good wine list, but it was very far. far. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the places that I tend to recommend the most are outside of the Aurelian walls, which is that sort of like arbitrary boundary that every guidebook defines as Rome when maybe like 150,000 people live within the Aurelian walls and uh, it only accounts for maybe 10% of the of the city's area. So you have all the rest of Rome outside the walls. And there are some great places to eat within the walls, though fewer and fewer every day. And for the good places, yeah, you do have to travel. Absolutely. It's a pretty navigable city, so... Uh, for you, yeah. maybe. I yeah. was really lost. <laughs> Touche. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, it might not be so navigable. <laughs> Sorry, I lied. At, at one point, there was like this... I'm using the Google Maps or whatever, mm-hmm. and it tells me to 
like turn right. Right was like up a very long <laughs> set of stairs. Yeah, that always that seems to always happen. Google is not a trustworthy navigator in uh, in Rome in particular because it doesn't have any sense of topography. So yeah. it's like, yeah, just go over that hill, and um, when you arrive at the apex, totally like sweaty and greasy, then go down the hill <laughs> instead of circumventing the hill, which would have been so much easier. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> like I got to the top of this hill and then I realized that we had to then go down the hill. Yeah. It's not fun, but it happens a lot. I'm sorry that happened to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a learning moment because I was like, oh, we'll definitely get there, you know, in time. And then when you're huffing and puffing and you can barely walk because yeah. you just took this very long set of stairs, then yeah. suddenly your travel time, you know, takes a little longer. Yeah. And, and Romans don't sweat. So if you arrive like sort of all like flushed and sweaty at places, then... You get sort of odd looks. Is that true? It's I just a, it's thought a true story. That was, you know, because <laughs> that's the general. I mean, I don't have any I scientific get, evidence that they don't sweat. I've just never seen anyone sweat in any Roman sweat. <laughs> so why would the wine service not be so great so often when there's such a long history with wine there? And there's, a, you know, you took a sommelier class mm -hmm. there. I mean, there is sommelier accreditation oh, and sure. training. So yeah, why yeah. is it that so often when I go to restaurants? I'm not so impressed with the sommeliers. Um, the sommelier accred uh, accredited courses in in Rome, um, and there are two. They focus on like amateur people that aren't going to go into any type of food and beverage service. Oh, so kind of the opposite of the yeah. United States sommelier. Exactly. Um, the wine service part of the exam is extremely limited and like sometimes not present at all in the exam. And I would say that in general, and if you visited sort of the classic trattorias of Rome, most of the staff is a professional wait staff, but without any wine background, without any wine background per se. At places like Roscioli, you're going to find trained staff. I mean, people that are experts in Italian wines and white burgundy, which happens to be very present on their menu. Um, at some of the fine dining restaurants, you'll find team on the floor that has excellent wine experience. These are very young people generally that have worked abroad or um, who are simply working in a different type of uh, dining environment than your classic trattoria. People used to go to the trattoria to um, have fun, chill with their families and friends, um, drink the local swill, which was not delicious, but uh, cheap. And, you know, in, in Rome, the type of dining, the traditional type of dining was spread out uh, among three different sort of genres. You had the Osteria, which was very, very basic. You got one, like, shot glass for your water and your wine. You got jug wine um, almost exclusively. And then at the Trattoria, there was a slightly larger selection, but mainly of industrial stuff from um, Tuscany, Sicily, and uh, and Lazio, um, which is the regional Industrial Romas. wines. Yeah, okay. totally. Not industrial food, but... Um, at the time when those three genres were really sort of the the dominant theme... Industrial wines. The food was much more local, and the the food tray was much more like sort of driven by seasons. That's changed too. Yeah, but now I think I think it's changing with the new types of of dining venues because the strict dining hours would only allow like one seating at lunch and one or two at dinner. Places in order to pay the rent simply have changed their hours and what they do. So there's a there's a trend of opening in the morning, going into um, past dinner service to cocktail service. And uh, and so you have people, young people, very energetic people who 
like learn learn about what's being served, are interested in what's being served, have have worked abroad. A lot of a lot of people working in um, these sort of like cocktail lounge restaurant pizzeria combo places have worked in Berlin or worked in London. I mean, you have a tremendous number of Italian people, young Italian people, who go abroad and then come back, and their palates have changed. Their ability to communicate uh, with people about what they're selling has changed. So that's an improvement. Are there jobs then for restaurant workers, perhaps more than in other fields? Um, I think there's definitely a bit more opportunity in the restaurant uh, industry than in than in others. I mean, Rome is a, a city of bureaucracy. I mean, tourism is super important, but the majority of people in Rome, and I think this is accurate for the country at large, are employed by the bureaucracy. Yeah, you've got... Uh, a lot of government offices that aren't hiring like they used to. They don't have the very liberal contracts um, like they used to. So there's a, there, are, and in spite of the financial crisis, there are, there are a lot of new places opening in Rome that serve food. So yeah, I think there's more opportunity in uh, in restaurants than in other sectors for sure. A lot of times here in New York, when we go to an Italian restaurant, it's all Italian wines. Mm-hmm. But, and I would say that that probably changed about ten or fifteen years ago mm-hmm. when it didn't used to, you know used to go and it'd be like a California's in on the menu. Now that's kind of not what, you know, people want a Brunello or mm-hmm. they may not go for the more obscure things, but they want a, an Amarone, a Brunello, a Brullo with their Italian meal. Is that still true in Rome? Is it all Italian wines at the Italian restaurant or is it more diverse than that? Um, there is a trend recently for places in Rome to only serve wines from the region. Um, and this is due to like regional investment in in restaurants. There are a few places that have a more international wine list. And the Michelin-starred places in Rome, of which there are about a dozen, tend to have some some white burgundy, uh, larger champagne. Every list in Rome of restaurants, every restaurant has a champagne, at least one or two on the on the menu, regardless of place. But um, uh, yeah, some like German Riesling, some Austrian Riesling. But the vast majority of places are focusing on Italy and... Uh, and Italian wines are relatively inexpensive to sell, and uh, and there's also sort of I think a nationalism in in food service um, that drives that as well. And also I think selling wines from abroad in Italy requires a great communicator um, to describe why this wine is on the menu, um, why you should choose this over over a Brunello or or Barolo, which I know a lot of uh, visitors to Rome are immediately drawn to those uh, to those wines. So you get to Rome, you know, over a decade ago. Mm-hmm. You're doing art tours. Why did you move into restaurants at a time when, by your own, you know, kind of summary of this, mm-hmm. it got more and more depressing? Um, I think because it got more and more depressing, because I saw a real disconnect between what was being documented about Roman food and what places were being recommended in the international press. I always, I always felt really strongly that if I could serve any positive function in Rome. Like I wanted to make a difference somehow. Um, so sharing stories of places, producers that are doing mean- meaningful work, um, but don't have a voice, that was that was the real driving force. Um, and another was I was pitching around a lot of stories that no one wanted to publish, even though they were really interesting. I know a lot of of journalists with blogs also face the same thing. Like, where do you put all these stories that you want to tell? But no editor will commission. Well, you throw them on your blog and you create this sort of a, a more, I mean, obviously more independent uh, approach to uh, 
to documenting a city's city's history. And, and you know, thankfully, it's you know what I put on my blog resonates with people, and they're interested in seeing that side of Rome, which is totally totally different from what the mainstream represents. You know, you said wanting to represent people who didn't have a voice, and sometimes, perhaps not in your context, but perhaps so, one of the groups that tends to not have a voice is women in highly, you know, machismo cultures. Mm -hmm. Did you find that to be also part of the story? Was that there was, you know, a a situation Mm -hmm. for women as well? Well, I think, you know, in in every business um, so far that I've encountered, women are at a slight disadvantage or a great disadvantage because of simply because of their gender. I mean, I think in Italy, particularly young women um, who are working in wine education um, or the wine business in general um, are subjected to a lot of like inappropriate touching and overstepping boundaries. Um, I mean, I was definitely, uh, I was definitely surprised when a wine bar where I conducted a lot of my uh, wine classes and, and private tastings, like during a tasting, the owner came over and like stroked my face in a very, um, very like per- overly personal way and. It was ex- it was embarrassing. <laughs> um, later, it was embarrassing for him when I like called him out on it in front of his clients. But you know, this is something that I don't. I haven't experienced in a professional setting in other places. It happens a lot in Rome. It happens to my colleagues on a pretty regular basis. But I don't think it's necessarily like unique to Rome. I mean, there are also examples in in the states where you know people overstep their boundaries because they're trying to take advantage of you or think you're vulnerable and think that their actions are appropriate. Um, I think the immigrant population in Rome is one that uh, has way less of a voice than than women if we're talking about um, minority representation. Um, so that's been a really rewarding thing. And like, I work with a, a, a group of you know, four other wine professionals in Rome to do charity events, one of which you know supp- uh, supports um, Barikama Yogurt, which is a small collective of, of yogurt makers, these African immigrants who escaped essentially slavery in the fields in in Calabria, picking pro, um, citrus, and came to Rome and have started this small business and and have been able to through um, through support of my friends and I and and many others have been able to grow a, a business which is really fantastic and really promising. But you know they wouldn't otherwise have a voice if there weren't Italians and an international group of journalists supporting them and writing about them. And do you feel that that group of journalists has developed more as social media has become more available so yeah. that there's less gatekeepers? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. And, and especially in like, you know, the the blog culture and, you know, in Rome, we've got a lot of uh, centri sociali. So they're the communist affiliated um, occupied buildings um, that have like websites and tumblers and Twitter accounts. So they can gather people together and communicate. And a lot of them actually run like natural wine uh, tastings on the weekends in these like super gritty subterranean chambers in, in like old barracks and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, if you get a lot of people together and you get them focused around supporting like small producers, whether it's yogurt or wine or cheese, you become more conspicuous and therefore you're, it's more difficult to like push people out of their occupied buildings or um, whatever their business happens to be. Is there a place for natural wine in Rome or? Yeah, I mean, definitely. There are several wine shops and wine bars which deal exclusively in um, natural or super traditional wines. It's, 
I mean, I hope it's not it's not a trend, <laughs> um, in a sense, because there are, there are some some places, Le Vigneron in Centocelle, for example, La Barrique um, in Monti, places where you can drink exceptional bottles at great prices, and where the the owners and and the Psalms are really really focused on the natural movement and definitely on traditional wines that are you know chucking out all the the ideas that every Italian wine has to have like months of barrique on it in order for it to be commercially viable which is so awful and what are other trends in terms of what people are drinking um so in addition to people are drinking better wine people who are interested in wines are have access to more wine so that's a good trend people are drinking more cocktails for sure for many decades the availability of a great cocktail was focused exclusively in one high-end hotel and that's really that's really grown and it's part of the same ritual of young people going abroad working in london working as a bar back then learning how to make drinks and then being hired as a bartender learning a new way to engage with customers which previously was absent um, in uh, in beverage service and creating really a whole new culture because Italians do not have cocktails with their food at restaurants. Lots of places have, you know, a random bottle of vodka in the back, but it's for their like 1980s inspired Paniella vodka recipe, you know, it's not to mix into a cocktail. So it's uh, in the past three months in particular, um, and it really started about a year ago, these great cocktail bars have opened with mainly um, men making drinks that they learned to craft in London and have honed in Rome. So that's super cool. And so because they went abroad. Yeah, they went abroad. They had exposure to new flavors. They had exposure to um, non-industrial brands. I mean, Italy's Italy has all these amazing distilled beverages and great Amari, but every place serves Jägermeister. You know, I was... I was at dinner at a place last night, and I saw like a huge selection of uh, Amari that you would never find in sort of a your traditional Italian setting, where Jaeger totally unfortunately dominates. But you've got you know it's it's crazy that you have to come to New York to drink some things that are made in Italy but have no so you're saying place there. <laughs> Rome is like a large frat party, is it's what a, you're saying. There's absolutely, lo- lots yeah. of Jaeger. I mean, fewer probably fewer keg stands. <laughs> I haven't seen funneling yet, but I'm sure it's on its way. <laughs> but I mean, sometimes when I speak with you, I feel a level of frustration. Is it frustrating to you that this is the situation in the city? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I've and it is it is frustrating. And I think something that's very gratifying. Yeah, we have to recognize that there's like a huge problem with the way that people have access to things, the way that people have access to quality ingredients, quality beverages. But there is there is great promise in the fact that like. American markets like um, San Francisco and Los Angeles and Chicago and New York have created a demand for quality things from Italy. Um, and as you know quite well, a lot of a lot of the wine portfolios in New York are populated with Italian producers that don't really sell much of their wine in Italy because there isn't a market for what they do. Um, the average Italian family spends 12 euros a month on wine, so they're not drinking. Valentini or our Pepe or anything um, of of this caliber, they're drinking supermarket wine. Frascati. Oh God, yeah, unfortunately, um, and not only. I mean, like Frascati definitely has a lot of a lot of distribution in in Rome, but um, I think most of it probably ends up in the U.S. As, you know, Is that true? Yeah, I would think so um, because the the Frascati DOCG has now like slightly elevated the prices. But I think um, the IGTs in Lazio, I think we've got four now, 
those are cheaper. The IGTs from Sicily and Puglia, definitely cheaper. So people sell those um, instead of, you know, Lazio wines, with the exception of a few places that are really focused on on promoting Lazio. But they're not focusing on Frascati. They're focusing on Cesanese. They're focusing on, you know, Passerina-based wines. They're focusing on all those great mineral whites coming from around Bolzana or Aliatico coming from around Lake Bolzana, stuff like that. And what about beer? Beer is in a really great moment in Rome. In 2009, Rome sort of entered the craft beer stage. A number of pubs already existed in the city, but um, in, in 09, a lot more opened. And craft beer is readily available, both domestic and international, in a huge number of beer shops. And so you, you have access to a lot of, of great brews. They're really expensive, though. So most people can't afford you know, a 15 euro, 750 bottle of wine from Piedmont, and nor do they crave sour ales. Beer from Piedmont. Yeah. So, so they don't like sour ales, even though there's some that are made in Italy that are. Yeah, I mean, the sour ales like from Lover Beer are some of the best beers coming out of Italy, period. But they don't have, they don't have, um, you can't go like crack one open in front of the game. It's not, it's not a, it's not a f- social, um, Bira Beverina. People are always after Bira Beverina, the beer that's drinkable, the thirst quencher. Um, it's a complex beer. It's something that's so elegant. It's so age-worthy. It's so spectacular. Um, but it doesn't fulfill that sort of niche of something that you could just quickly run into a shop and get or have with any food. And what about other areas of the world? I feel like you get to Turkey now and again. Yeah, Turkey's a super interesting place for food, and, and it's a really volatile place for beverage. I mean, the current political situation regarding internet access. What do you has, mean by that? So uh, the Erdogan-run government um, is once again limiting access and monitoring access to to uh, websites in Turkey. So if you have like a, Tur- a Turkish IP address, I mean, I remember I would go there even just like three years ago and you wouldn't be able to access YouTube um, for months. There's a concerted effort on the part of the government to limit information, how it's distributed, and how people connect to each other. Um, and there are protests going on. There were protests this weekend about the new inter- internet laws. But the wine industry, the spirits industry, has already um, felt the impact of the Erdogan-led government, the, the current government's um, control of, of digital media. And on September 11th of 2013, all electronic promotion of wine, uh, of vineyards, and any type of, of wine promotion was banned. So all uh, the vineyards had to take down their websites or put a placeholder that says, like, due to the current laws that will affect culture, negatively affect culture, um, we've had to take down our websites. The messages that um, alcohol is dangerous for culture and bad for children and sends a bad message to the youth and therefore has to be uh, prohibited. Um, so in addition to the, all the websites having to, become, uh, having to be taken down, um, vineyards had to remove their Facebook pages. They had to shut down their Twitter feeds. And this is just one part of the prohibition of alcohol and the, sort of the, the free communication of alcohol. I'm sure that we can find instances of this also in the U.S. And I'm not sure if it's on the state or federal level where like certain types of alcohol promotion is limited, but it's, it's a really drastic moment in, in Turkey in terms of people's freedoms. And so it becomes even more, I think, important to, to discuss and talk about 
and it, you know this this uh, set of prohibition laws, which in in addition to the to the electronic, the the changes of electronic promotion, also they were discussing like not allowing outdoor seating where people were were able to be seen drinking, um, although the enforcement of that is sort of like up in the air. It was coming at a moment when the, when a lot of Turkish like provincial and regional authorities were investing money in promoting Turkish wine, um, which definitely has a long way to go um, in order to be a product that for a wine drinker who appreciates nuanced wines that reflect the territory from which they come, like a lot of Turkish wines are made with an international, totally banal palate in mind. Um, a shame because there are these fantastic native native grapes, which often would be either ignored or blended with Merlot or Cabernet Sauvignon and then thrown in a barrique for way too long and would just become a totally like inert substance with no character. But that, you know, the the moment for the improvement of of Turkish wine may have to may have to wait as a result. And that that applies across borders. So if I were to try to find a Turkish website for a winery from America, I couldn't mm -hmm. find it. It's not like there's radio free website where somebody has like a, a website in exile where there's No, if you go on like I was just doing some research, you know, last week and I went on the Corvus website. Corvus is one of the the larger, but it's sort of branded as a boutique vineyard. And yeah, the same placeholder that you see in Turkey is and the one that you see in, in Italy is the same one that you see here. Um, and it's a Turkish message that says, from September 11th onward, we cannot promote the business, blah, blah, blah. So so if you show up there, are they allowed to talk to you about the wines? It's, uh, so, yeah, you're not supposed to um, have guests at your vineyard. Even for educational purposes, it's not allowed. So this summer, I visited um, some vineyards in Eliza, which is like one of the cradles of, of grape cultivation in, in uh, eastern Anatolia. And um, I was kindly asked to not do any type of social networking, not to put a single grapevine on the internet, not to have any geotags, because the vineyards could uh, face fines or worse for promoting their wine through, through tours. Is the expectation that how they're supposed to sell their wine is to change, or is the expectation that they're going to have to stop selling wine? Um, so this is a great question. Who knows? Because the, since the Gezi protests last, last May, everything about Turkey's future and the way that the government works and operates is so in question. Like, will Erdogan be able to definitively seize power and make it a totally Islamic state? Maybe. Will there be a coup? Maybe. We don't know. So what we do know is that there are so many battles that people who work in the food and beverage industry have fought and lost in order to be able to sell wines. I mean, the tariffs on on um, all alcoholic beverages are really, really high. As a result, if you go out to a bar in Beolu, which is zone in in uh, in Istanbul, where most of the bars are concentrated, you know, a beer is costs the equivalent of like five dollars. That's a lot of money by sort of the income standards of that city. A cocktail is sixteen dollars. That is a lot, a lot of money again, considering what people earn or what the average person earns. So what the, I mean, I think what the future is, if we can look into sort of like the short term, is that the government will continue to make it more uncomfortable to purchase alcohol and it will make it more expensive and then just sort of price it out of reasonable consumption patterns. People won't be able to afford it. And it's a luxury item for a very slim segment of the population anyway. And therefore, um, yeah, therefore, 
drinking in, in Istanbul and drinking in Turkey may become more and more difficult. And what about the cuisine of Turkey? The cuisine of Turkey, it's, uh, it's so varied. I mean, I think when I moved to Italy, I was so inspired by the idea of biodiversity and like all these regional cuisines and the notion of people working by hand and making things by hand. Whereas I find that's more true in, in Turkey with a huge rural population still that has such a super regional cuisine and, you know, the ingredients, the spices, the flavors, the textures that you find um, in Eliza or Hatay or Antep are completely different from one another. I mean, there's so many hundreds of recipes that are married to a single place, uh, which is stunning. It's fascinating. And it it's this like, it's the gift that keeps on giving with every trip that I take. I, I discover new things. And there's also I mean, this fantastic grilling culture where, you know, you have these grilled innards or, or charcoal grilled meats served with rucka. Rucka also goes re- really well with uh, with meze. So on the Aegean coast, you get these great vegetable and fish meze served with, you know, the local distilled beverage. So, um, so it's fun. Rucka is like rocky? Is yeah. That yeah. Similar? Rocky. <laughs> okay, exactly. I'm just yeah, asking because yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, yeah. know. No, no, I've so, never heard so it the Tur- that So the Turkish pr- pronunciation is raka. Okay. Yeah, so I kind of like that more. It's like, kind of cooler, I think. <laughs> like Jay-Z was going to start up Raqqa fella with Damon Dash for a while. I think. That's a true story, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a um, soft eye rather than like the eye with the dot. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so it's just a pronunciation thing. You can also ask for Rocky when you're there and people will sort of understand what you're saying. So it's distilled from grapes? Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, and in fact, uh, you know, the vast majority of of grapes in in Turkey are either used for table grapes or for the production of rucka, which is, until very recently, all the rucka was produced by a a government monopoly. But now there's a series of, like, very large but multiple large companies that that produce and... and, So it's not a boutique thing. There's not, like, some guy out in... No, I mean, this is something... In fact, I'm desperate to find artisanal beverage producers of any kind in in Turkey. I mean, the cost of doing business is so high, and there just simply isn't really a market for boutique spirits. So, God, on all my travels, I'm always searching, like, hey, does your grandpa make, like, rucka? Does your, does your cousin make wine? Are there these distilled beverages anywhere? And I have... I mean, I, I hope that in my travel I'll find something. Um, certainly, I've been attempting to research with lots of with lots of help from colleagues, but it, but to no avail. I would think that the the Sephardic Jewish communities or the Greek communities had distilled beverages, had wine culture, but those were eradicated for the obvious political reasons when when those when those populations were either expelled or taxed to the point of of leaving the country. Do you find it easy to move from Italy to Turkey on a regular basis, like in terms of freedom of movement? Oh, yeah, for sure. Plus, I have an Italian passport, so I don't even have to pay for a visa to get into Turkey. I just walk right through, which is great. Yeah, and I mean, there's there are so many flights and everything. And, and Italians also find Istanbul very appealing uh, because of the connection, like New Rome, Old Rome, that marriage of of the capital cities of the Roman Empire, people are really into that. So yeah, it's super easy to get there. It's super easy to navigate. Um, it's a very inexpensive place to to travel. So it's a pretty pretty popular destination. Is there an art history link for you between those two cities? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the one place after Rome that I wanted to visit more than any place in the world was was Istanbul because I saw Hagia Sophia um, in a slide 
um, in Vincent Scully's famous intro to architecture class, which is like super legendary um, art history class at Yale. And I mean, I'd never seen anything like this before. And like the the photograph was very simple, but like the light and the way that it came in through those um, curved windows under the dome and created a, a space that looked like a void. So it looked as though the dome was hanging above the architecture. Like that was the coolest thing I would, I'd ever seen. So I immediately, <laughs> as soon as I could after I graduated, went on my backpacking trip and, and planned, a, planned a trip to Istanbul too. And that was that was what sort of changed the way that I felt about about travel and and architecture and you know with the visit to Hagia Sophia I visited this great kebab place and then became really interested in that and then started visiting more and more places for the food so it was architecture again that drew me to to Turkey but it's the food that like lures me back over and over again and how have you found it to be to communicate that to people back here in America because it seems like mm-hmm. you've made a lot of effort to do that what's that been like for you and where have you found the successes and where has it been more challenging um, I think you know when it comes to like articles and things there are a lot of publications that are super open open to publishing things about contemporary Istanbul like all of the um, gallery spaces and new museums and and culture destinations it's been more difficult to to write about the wine because it's not available in the States probably at all, or maybe very little. Yeah, very little. Very, very little. And uh, and what you find here, I imagine, is not going to overwhelm you to the point that you want to hop on a plane. Um, like school on Sunday. Yeah. Bunch of no-class turkeys. <laughs> no, school on Thanksgiving. Sorry, I butchered my own joke. Oh, terrible. Well done. Com- complimenting. Oh, jeez. Maybe I should have gone to school on Sunday. Studying more not, jokes. You know, Love you. It's never too late. <laughs> it is never too late. It's right across from Pepe's. So. Well, not really, but close enough. Um, yeah, but I think Turkey also is a. It, it's for the obvious geographical, religious, and political reasons. It's also a place that people understand misunderstand a lot. So I do. I don't have any idea. Like there's riots and they fight over Cyprus. I don't know anything about it. I really, I don't get it. I don't yeah, know. That, there's like, uh, used to be, uh, it's like that song, Istanbul, Constantinople, <laughs> Istanbul, you know, and they like throw up the the things on Hagia Sophia. Like it used to be a Christian church and now it's not. And it's got, uh, you no, know. It's a museum, so I have it's no idea. secular. Yeah, at but least for the moment. At one point it became like an It was Islam. a mosque. Yeah, 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 like with different, they put up these big plates. Those big medallions with yeah, the names yeah, of yeah, Allah exactly. written in, yeah. in massive calligraphy. Yeah, I mean it's a it's such an interesting it's such an interesting place. And when I go to Istanbul after spending time in Rome, obviously where I live, I'm always like, Rome needs to like send the mayor here or something to like make a modern place because it's so like fast moving and paced and like there's so much being built. I mean, a lot of the building also requires the destruction of historic neighborhoods, which is not yeah, a deal they shouldn't do problem, in Rome. Actually, <laughs> like they're about to do it definitely. right around Hagia Sophia, and there's like protests about it. Yeah, like they're yeah. going to knock like, down the, a bunch of buildings. Oh, yeah. I'm, and I mean, Erdogan's government, even though it's the national government, it also, because of the way that the, the government is set up there, it has say in what happens in cities. Like it's in charge of everything. So it can influence how neighborhoods are treated. And you have like all these old Armenian and Greek neighborhoods which are bulldozed on, on the regular in order to make way for like real particularly ugly um, shopping malls and high-rises and lots of bad hotels and gross shit like that. So, But you should go visit anyway. <laughs> There's also Before really nice they're stuff. gone, pick up Katie Parla's Istanbul. It's an app. <laughs> that is true. Available in the app store. No, but I mean, what? so 
I guess we we went back to Istanbul, but mm -hmm. about the writing and the communication part. Mm -hmm. What works when you're talking to to Americans who may be traveling in these regions in terms of articles uh -huh. or apps or the blog or numerous radio appearances? Because when I mm -hmm. when I look at your CV, you know it's a long time between C and V. That's a lot of letters. <laughs> There's a lot in there that you've done. Yeah, no, I think uh, definitely talking to people individually, but then also reaching larger audiences through. Um, the blog, through articles, through podcasts. I mean, these are all like really exciting ways to to talk about things that you're passionate about, and and it's a uh, and it's really um, it's really fun to do. So also through Twitter, like Instagram. I mean, a lot of people that come to Rome follow my blog after they leave, and then they say like, "Oh, I saw this great dish that you had in Istanbul. Can you recommend a guide there? So can you give me restaurant recommendations?" So it is a very time-consuming job to do like individual like cultural ambassadorship to to Turkey, but I think it's also really rewarding if I can get a few people a year to book a trip and visit my favorite cocktail bar there or my favorite restaurant or my favorite um, spice shop. Then it's doing a little bit to help the culture and that sort of spreads as well. It becomes a viral effect and they tell their friends and there's a lot of word of mouth. So There is a level where sometimes you sound like a crusader or at least a public advocate. Yeah, I mean, God, it, some, it sounds a bit narcissistic, but I feel... I feel like in some sectors where I have a voice and where I can make an impact, I have to do more. Like I don't, I feel like I I don't do quite enough. Um, I have to sleep like at least two hours a night, um, which uh, I would prefer not to. But you know, th these are critical moments. These are times when, when you know, a Jersey girl can write a post and discuss a theme and be controversial or write about something that makes people uncomfortable. But do so with integrity and with an independent, with an independent approach. How uh, old are you? I'm 33. Sometimes when I talk to people from Rome, they say it's almost like an immovable rock. Just the history of Rome, and you really can't act against it. And yet, for yeah. you, it's it, you sound so active in a way that it feels like you're trying to steal back time mm -hmm. to push against that rock of immobility. Is that? Yeah, I mean, I also think that Romans have this really pessimistic view of their city and they will and that's also their perception i mean it's also a place where like you know at 22 years old i go to rome and i was like i'm gonna make it here i'm gonna be able to like support myself and i'm gonna do this and all my roman friends are like you're dumb like why don't you ask your parents for money why don't you why don't you like i don't know go back to america it's so much better there i don't believe in i don't believe in buying into like what other people advise me to do and never really have. Um, and I also saw a lot of potential. Like, there should be other Katie Parlas. There should be other people talking about these topics. There should be other people educating themselves in these topics and writing about these topics because they're really super important and they're accessible and they matter. Like, Rome might be 3,000 miles from New York, but what happens there is important to world culture. I mean, it's a place that since well, legendary, legendarily speaking, since 753 BC has been like a critical part of, of world culture. And if there can be an, improved, an improvement in the way that people eat in Rome, either Romans or Italian visitors or foreign visitors, whatever, that will then create a demand for better products being made in Italy, which will then create better products that can be sent away from Italy in order to grow those businesses into something tangible. So, um, so yeah. That was a really long, weird, rambling <laughs> response, but maybe I, think I answered it. Was great. It. <laughs> I was so kind. Thank you. I really did. 
Katie Parla, she's talking about things that matter. You can find more at parlafood.com or on numerous apps or articles that she has authored. Thank you so much for being here today. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Katie Parla. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.